You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. So glad you're here. Uh, We are in week number three of a sermon series where we are going verse by verse through the entire book of Ephesians. I say this before almost every single sermon I preach here at Revolution Church, just in case there's visitors. We want you to know what we do about 90 to 95% of the time is we preach verse by verse through entire books of the Bible or through large passages of Scripture. This is the third week where we're going through Ephesians, as I've said, and today is going to be so encouraging for every single one of us. Today, we're really going to see in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, a picture that Paul gives us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of the good news of the gospel. Before we do that, I want to give you an illustration just to illustrate really the different responses that you may have today. I heard about a doctor that was a heart doctor, and he had three different patients that had the exact same issue with their heart. The good thing about this problem with these three patients' hearts is there was a surgery that was 100% successful at getting them on the road to recovery with this heart problem. Well, this doctor goes to tell all three of his patients individually uh, that they have this problem with their heart, but there is a surgery. And he goes to the first one, he does it one by one, and he says, you've got a problem with your heart. And before he could even talk about the surgery, uh, this patient stood up and said, how could you criticize me like this? I came in here to be reassured and encouraged, and you have made me feel terrible about my health. And he stormed out of the office. He goes to the second patient. He says, you've got a heart problem, but there's good news. Starts to tell him about the surgery. And before he could even get done telling him about the surgery, this man stands up enraged. How dare you? Who do you think you are telling me that my heart needs surgery? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go get a second opinion and a third opinion if I need to. Someone that will tell me that my health is just fine. Rushes out of the room. The third patient that the doctor talks to, he tells him, you've got a heart problem, tells him the good news about this surgery. He comes at it with a little bit more humility. He looks at the doctor and says, doc, this is terrible shock to hear that I have this heart problem. But thank you so much for telling me the truth. I'm so relieved to hear of this good news of the operation that can save me. Please tell me more. What we're going to see today as we go through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that in a figurative sense, every single one of us has a heart problem. We have a condition with our spiritual hearts. And you get to decide today how you're going to react to the good news of the surgery that has a 100% success rate at fixing your heart today. In verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to see Paul lay out the steps of normal Christian faith. In other words, he's going to lay out three different stages of Christianity. Now remember, the book of Ephesians is written to people that are already Christians. This isn't really an evangelistic letter, even though it comes off that way today. So he's going to talk about stage 1, stage 2, stage 3, and really He's going to talk about the three different stages as stage one is what we used to be, our past. Stage two is presently what we are. And then stage three is going to talk about the future. 
really, he's going to talk about what some theologians have said when Christians go from the graveyard to glory. We're going to see this picture of Christians going from Death Valley, so to speak, to Graceland. We're down with some Graceland this weekend in Tennessee. Amen, y'all? So uh, even young people know who Elvis is. He's kind of hot right now, right? So not hot like in a weird way, but, you know. Let's start in verse 1, and let's look at the first three verses. And let's take a look at Paul describing what Christians used to be. Now, if you're not a Christian in here, this is where you still are. You're still in stage one if you've never put your trust in Christ. Let's read starting verse one. Y'all with me? Say, I am. Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. These first three verses in chapter 2 go into detail about the doctrine that's known as the doctrine of total depravity or the idea that every single human being that has ever lived with the exception of Jesus has a sinful nature, maybe you've heard it that way, or you've got a black heart, or you've messed up in some way, and you just keep messing up, and you can't stop. In this passage, Paul talks about three different things that contribute to our total depravity, and I'm going to refer to them as the three prison guards of total depravity, or as one theologian puts it, total depravity is spiritual death. First, Paul talks about the world. The world, the first prison guard is the world, or the idea that every single one of us has an external cultural problem. See, from a biblical worldview, when you read the Bible, what we believe is ever since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, ever since that moment, we live in what's called a fallen world, a fallen world where everything in the world is not quite right. In other words, no matter who gets elected, no matter what policies get put in place, no matter how good we try to be, how much good people try to do, how much good people mobilize together and try to do, there's always going to be evil in the world. There's always going to be wrong in the world. We're going to look around and we're going to see wars and we're going to see all kinds of different things taking place because we live in a fallen world. We just can't seem to get it straightened out. So that's the first prison guard. The second prison guard that Paul talks about is the devil. And that's the idea that every single person has a hostile, supernatural enemy that is looking to destroy your life. Here Paul calls the devil uh, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And he's referring to this spiritual war that we're all, if we just think about it for a minute, we're all a part of. There's all these things around us in our world that make no sense. And when it doesn't make sense, it is spiritual, whether it's negative or it's positive. So Paul says the second prison guard is Satan and his demons that are sending temptations that are encouraging sin all over the world. If you're not saved in here and you haven't asked Jesus into your heart and into your life and surrendered everything to him, 
the, the war is to keep you unsaved. If you are saved in here and you put your trust in Christ, the enemy, Satan, has one goal, and that's to make you completely ineffective for God's kingdom. So he's going to do everything he can to discourage you and to destroy you. The third prison guard of total depravity is our flesh. It's the flesh as it's referred to here. And that's the idea that every single one of us has these internal compulsive sinfulness that we struggle with. Paul here refers to it as transgressions or trespasses. I would say that what he's referring to is these two words, the willful disobedience that every single one of us have participated in. That's our flesh. Willful disobedience physically, willful disobedience mentally. In every way, we have participated in our flesh. Now, in this passage, in these first three verses, Paul uses this phrase, in which you used to live, in which you used to live. Uh, one translation says, in which you walked. And the Greek word for that is the Greek word peripateto. And this is what it means to order your behavior. And here's a few other definitions of this Greek word peripateto. Listen to what it says. It means to meander. It means to browse. It means to wander about loosely without a goal. Now, when I hear that definition, to wander about loosely without a goal, I can't help but think of when I go to Knoxville with my wife and she goes shopping. And all the men said, Amen. To wander about loosely without a goal. There's a big difference between the way men shop and the way females shop typically. When I go shopping, Every once in a while, I'll get distracted and buy something, but I'm always on my way to get something very specific. So if I'm going somewhere to go shopping, it's because I have something in mind I need. I go get that thing. I buy it. I get back in my car, and then I go straight home. My wife is completely different. She doesn't have anything in her mind that she needs or she wants to get. She's just, let's go to West Town. Let's go to Turkey Creek. Let's go to Target. And inevitably, what always ends up happening is she finds something that she wants, especially when she goes to that stinking dollar section of Target. Y'all know what I mean? We get more junk we don't need from that section that ends up in the garage than anywhere else on this planet. We can open our own Target. Y'all know what I'm saying? Just meandering about, window shopping, browsing, but eventually buying it. This is the idea that Paul is giving us with our flesh, our sinfulness. We're browsing. We're window shopping. We're wondering about loosely without a goal. We don't have anything in mind that we really want to participate in, but we're looking through the window and we see this form of sin and we say, oh, that looks good. I'm going to participate in that. We go to the next store and we see this sin and we say, oh, I'm going to jump in on that. And every single one of us has bought sin. Isaiah 53 puts it well when it says, we all like sheep have gone astray. What do sheep do? They meander about mindlessly. That's what every single one of us have done. Now we're getting ready to go to the next part of the scripture. And I want you to keep in mind that this is the encouraging part. Because if there is three prison guards to total depravity and our sinfulness, you need to remember that Jesus said, 
I came to set the captives free. In other words, what we're about to see is Jesus came to lead a prison break. In other words, Jesus came to defeat the three prison guards of total depravity. Let's go from what we used to be to what we are now. Are y'all with me? Say, I am. I'm going to stop real close to the beginning here because I got to tell y'all the name of my sermon, okay? It says this in verse four, but because of his great love for us, stop right there, but because of his great love for us. I'm giving you the title to my sermon halfway through the sermon today. The name of my sermon today is But God. Everybody say, But God. But God. Look at your neighbor and say, But God. Find somebody else around you and say, One T. Did y'all say what? Really? But. One T. But. One T. Okay, y'all. <laughs> it's like an early service today. Y'all go like, What? Huh? You'll get it at like four o'clock this afternoon. Okay, y'all. The phrase in our translation, the NIV says, but because of his great love for us, God. Most translations say two words, but God, but God. This is what we were and what we used to be. We were totally depraved, but God, but God. Two incredibly powerful words you will see all through the Bible. James Boyce says this, if we understand these two words, they will save your soul. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about that phrase, but God, these two words in and of themselves contain the entire gospel. We're sinners. We're destined for God's wrath. We're destined for hell, but God. The idea can be found in the song we all know very well, Amazing Grace. Uh, amazing Grace. I once was lost, what church? But now I'm found. I once was blind, what church? But now I see. But God, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then let's include verse 10 in this later in the passage because it also talks about what we are now. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Incredible. Incredible scripture. Paul here uses several words. Some of them we've explained in the past weeks in this series. First, he uses the word mercy. And mercy means not getting what you deserve. Now, in the previous point, we read in Scripture that what we deserve is the wrath of God. Secondly, he uses the word grace again. And in week one, we did a pretty good job, I feel like, of expounding on the word grace and explaining what it is. But this is what grace means. Something you do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is something getting something you do not deserve. What we don't deserve is salvation. What we don't deserve is to be saved. We deserve punishment, but by grace, God gave us forgiveness in other words. We deserve the consequences of sin, but by grace, God showed us mercy. We deserve wrath, but by grace, God gave us relief. We deserve hell, but by grace, God ushered us into heaven. 
We deserve misery, but by grace, He gave us hope. We deserve guilt and shame, but by grace, He gave us glory and honor. We deserve damnation, but Jesus gave us deliverance. Amen, Rev Church. I love the book of Ephesians, man. It's a whole lot of celebrating. God's grace, He's given us salvation. It's unbelievable. In verse 5, the C part of that verse, let me read it again, and then it's repeated in verse 8, but it's in more depth and more detail. It says, is by grace you have been saved. But then in verse 8, it expounds on this idea of by grace we've been saved. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. What does that mean? Let me say it a couple of different ways. Grace is the objective basis for salvation. The subjective means of receiving grace is faith. Let me say it a different way. We are saved by grace, but we appropriate this grace through faith. Let me say it a different way. We are saved by grace, but we activate grace through faith. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. I hope it does. You've been given a gift that's not of yourselves. It's in the wrapping paper, but the faith is ripping the wrapping paper off, so to speak. Faith means truth, reliance, dependence on someone or something. Chuck Swindoll puts it this way about this verse and his commentary on this verse. Faith is the wholehearted acceptance of the fact that what God says is true, trusting that the gift of salvation will be exactly as he has promised. By grace, you have been saved through faith. It goes even further when it says it's not by works. Some of you have been taught growing up in church settings and really Every other major religion except for Christianity teaches this. Christianity is the only grace-based religion. But they've taught you something like, you better do good stuff so that you can make it to heaven. You better do some good works so that you can make it to heaven. But here Paul says, it's not by works. Previously, Paul gives us this example of death. Spiritually, you're dead. You're dead in your sins. You know, there's something I've noticed about dead people. Dead people can't do anything, y'all. You know that? They can't. Like, you know the show The Walking Dead? That's not true, okay, y'all? It's a show, but that's not reality. You don't walk after you're dead. You can't do anything. In other words, corpses can't move. So if we're spiritually dead, how crazy is it to think that we could do anything to save us? There's nothing we can do to save us. It's all about what Jesus has done and how he has made us alive in Christ, as it says in the scripture. Here it tells us that what we are now is we're not just sanctified and saved. We're also created in Christ Jesus to do good works. What does that mean? What's the connection of grace with works. What's the connection of being saved with being good? Well, first, let me say this. Unequivocally, 
I want to make sure that we understand the only thing the gospel requires to be saved is faith in Christ. The only thing it requires. But you're probably sitting here thinking, well, what about works? Because faith without works, after all, is dead. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. The book of James talks about the dichotomy between someone that thinks they're saved, but they're not really saved, and therefore there's no good works. In other words, there's no change in their life. And those who really put their trust in Jesus and surrender everything to him and put their faith in him, and then there is a change that takes place in their life, and it's seen through the fruits of the Spirit and through works. Listen to this. Works are what the gospel produces after we have faith and get saved. Works do not save you. If they did, you could be saved apart from Jesus, and that is completely impossible. There are two ways to look at salvation, being saved, and works. There's legalism, which is a works-based salvation, which is what the world teaches and every other major religion teaches. And what it says is, I have to do good works, I have to be good, or God won't save me. But what the Bible teaches is grace, getting something you don't deserve, a faith-based, in other words. And how good works is tied to that is we think, I want or I get to do good works because God has saved me. The difference is, I have to be good so God will save me on the works side and legalism versus I get to do good because God loves me so much, he chose me and saved me. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. So now we offer our body as a living sacrifice because it's the least we could do for the one that saved us. We do everything we can to please him and further his kingdom and keep the mission of God in front of us constantly because he said, not so he will save us, but because he has saved us. That's what we are now. But now, let's go to the third stage. What we will be. Looked at what we were. Looked at what we are now. Now let's look at what we will be in verses 6 through 7. Y'all with me? Say, I am. Paul continues and says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What Paul's talking about here is the anticipation of our future, and this is a big word, but I'm going to explain it. The anticipation of our future glorification. The anticipation of our future glorification. When it comes to being saved, the Bible teaches that there are three steps to the process of being saved. The first step is what we know as justification. That's the moment that you are saved. The moment you surrender everything to Christ in faith and put your trust in Him, you are the most amount of saved you're ever going to be, but there is more salvation available to you after that, so to speak. The second stage is called sanctification. Sanctification is the idea that after you get saved and before you die, you're going to become more like Jesus. Now you've got the Holy Spirit in you. You're going to be more generous and more faithful and more forgiving, and you're going to grow in your faith, and you're going to look more like Jesus and be sanctified. 
The third part of the process is what Paul is talking about here. It's glorification. It's the idea, you've heard it said like this before when we go to heaven, that one day we are going to be in glory. And I always heard preachers say it like this. One day we're going to be in glory. Y'all ever heard that before? Everybody say that with me. One, two, three. Glory. Some of y'all got the stink face on. Let's do it again. Okay, y'all. One, two, three. Glory. This is what Paul is talking about here. We're given a perfect body. When either we die or Jesus comes back and we go to heaven for eternity with him. Notice that in this scripture, Paul describes our future glorification as a past event. This denotes certainty of this event. In other words, this is a done deal even though it hasn't happened to us yet. The afterthought, it's an afterthought as to whether or not this will happen. It's a guarantee. You remember in week one, we said one of the reasons we have to praise God in week one, verses one through 15 of chapter one, was because the Holy Spirit has set a seal on us. And we explained that word seal means it's a deposit that's put down now. And the deposit is you have the Holy Spirit with a guarantee of future payment. The future payment is guaranteed and the future payment is glory. It is heaven. Amen, Rev Church. It should be something that's very encouraging to you. You know, I get lots of uh, comments and different things about my sermons and about the way our churches ran and stuff like that. And 99.9% of them are so good. You guys are so encouraging. But every once in a while, I get somebody that comes to our church and, and they ask, you know, why we do some things. So it's not that they're negative. They just want to know the why behind it. I've had people say like, why do you guys preach verse by verse through books of the Bible? And I'm like, what? What do you mean? Why do we go? For, like, it's the Bible. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to, isn't it weird that in 2023, we're kind of weird and we're different because we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible and we don't just put these cotton candy sermons up about all this victimhood language and stuff like that. But anyway, another thing that somebody asked me one time was, why do y'all talk about heaven so much? Man, it's kind of old school. It seems kind of kind of old school. I just looked at him and said, what do you want us to talk about, man? What are we going to talk about, y'all? We'll talk about UT football. They're playing Missouri and Georgia the next two weeks. We'll be depressed. Y'all know what I mean? Like, goodness gracious. If we beat Georgia, by the way, everybody better wear their orange the next morning. Amen, y'all? Because Pastor Brandon's getting it. So is PJ. Where's PJ at? You're getting it too. These Georgia fans are getting it. You're going to see me up here. You won't even be able to see me. They'll have to turn the camera off because he'll be so bright up here, you know? My point is, they let us down sometimes. What are we going to talk about? Politics? Hey, let's all agree on one thing. I don't care if you're a Democrat. I don't care if you're a Republican. If you're waiting on someone in Washington to fix your life, you're going to be waiting forever. Amen, y'all? What are we going to talk about that? Why don't we talk about the thing we're guaranteed, baby? I mean, aren't we supposed to put our minds on things above and not things below? Aren't we supposed to talk about constantly about how we don't mourn like people with no hope? Our hope is heaven. Aren't we supposed to talk about constantly about how we're not citizens of the United States? We are citizens of what church? Heaven. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it all the time. Every time we land on it in Scripture, we're going to celebrate this fact. Now, I read this example this week that. 
There's a place in California that is the lowest geographical place by sea level in the continental United States called Death Valley. And it's 282 feet below sea level. Death Valley, it's called that because it's almost impossible to sustain life there. It's hot. It's like a desert. But did you know that just 80 miles from Death Valley, the lowest point in the continental United States, 80 miles from Death Valley is a place called Mount Whitney that is the highest point in the continental United States, 14,500 feet above sea level. Here's what Paul wants to do in this scripture and God is leading us to today. If you're here this weekend and you feel like you're in Death Valley, you feel like you're at a low point in life, you feel like you don't know where to turn, you feel like you're in a fallen world, you feel like your heart's about to give out on you, take heart, no pun intended, because we're really close to the highest point that we could ever get to called heaven. Amen, Rev Church. Heaven. What we will be. When you read through chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, you really, as I said at the beginning, this is a picture of the gospel. You're left with this question. And the question is, are you saved? In the South, we use the word saved all the time to describe someone that has put their trust in Jesus. And in our culture, everybody says they're saved. But in the Bible, in this passage, you see the word saved used a couple different times, and it's the Greek word sozo. Everybody say sozo. Sozo. This Greek word means to save or to rescue. And listen to the working definition of this word saved, sozo. There's a couple Bible definitions that I'm going to give you too, but this word is a verb that refers to saving from physical danger. It also means saving from sin and its effect, or eternal saving believers receive by grace through faith in Christ. This saving includes rescue from the wrath of God and deliverance into a new life of hope and good works. Are you saved? That's the question this weekend. Studying this passage this week, I couldn't help but think of an example of what it means to be saved, such a clear illustration that we find in the Gospels. You guys go ahead and put that picture up of the three crosses and just leave it up here as I speak about this. This is an iconic photo. You guys all know that the three crosses represents Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull where Jesus was murdered and he died for the sins of the world. But isn't it interesting that it's three crosses and not just one? Jesus is on what I would call the cross of redemption, and he's in the middle. But we know that the Bible gives us an account of not just one cross of Jesus in the middle, but two thieves, one on each side of Jesus. You've probably heard the story before that these two thieves that are on each side of Jesus couldn't have a different reaction to Jesus. One of them is on a cross of what I would call rebellion. In other words, an attitude of, of rebellion. 
He looks at Jesus and he mocks him and he says, if you are the king, then why don't you get us down from here? And he completely makes the decision to think Jesus is nothing. But the other criminal is on a cross of what I call repentance. He has an attitude of repentance. He looks at Jesus and says, I'm getting what I deserve. I'm depraved. I'm a sinner. This is exactly what I deserve. And he looks at Jesus, you remember? And he says, but Jesus, there's something different about you. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? When you go into paradise? You remember the response Jesus had? He looks at this thief that has a repentant heart and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Notice. Notice. There's only two choices that you can make when it comes to Jesus. And it's illustrated so perfectly. You can be rebellious or you can be repentant. Both these guys on the right and on the left were in the same boat. There is nothing either one of them could have done to make themselves right with God. Notice that. No works they could have performed. Neither of these guys were baptized. Saying baptism doesn't save you? A hundred percent, that's what I'm saying. Neither of them went to church. Going to church doesn't save you? A hundred percent, that's what I'm saying. Neither of them tithed. Neither of them fed the poor. We have no indication whatsoever that at any point during their lifetime they worshiped the one true God by themselves or with anybody. Here they are with seconds left to life. Jesus looks at the one that's repent and says, you're saved. You're saved. The question you've got to wrestle with today is, are you saved? Not have you been baptized. Not do you come to church. Not do you tithe. Not are your parents saved. Are you saved? This week, I took my family to Knoxville, and we've got a Jeep Cherokee. And every single one of the seats in this Jeep Cherokee has a seat warmer. And I've got a son named Titus who's 12 years old, and I've got a daughter named Elizabeth who's 15 years old, and they were sitting in the back seat as we drove to Knoxville. Around about Lawnville, the exit Lawnville, I hear my daughter scream out, my butt's on fire! 
Everybody say that with me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Look at your neighbor. No, I'm just kidding. She says, Titus, quit turning my seat warmer on without me knowing. As he does when any good brother does. He bugs his sister and he turns her seat warmer on even when it's 100 degrees outside. And then she doesn't realize it for a few minutes until she gets upset. What a great day to be at Rev Church. And here Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I'm trying to think of how to say this. It's one thing. You die and you stand before Jesus and say, I never knew it was going to get hot when I faced the judgment. I didn't know somebody was going to turn the seat warmers off. But today you've heard it. You know where the button is. You're here this weekend and you say to yourself, I don't think I know if I'm saved. What you need to do is you need to do business with the one that created you. I'm not getting ready to have an altar call where people come forward or raise their hand. That's not our goal here at Revolution Church is to have a big emotional moment at the end of service where most of the people in here are judging the effectiveness of my preaching based on how many people respond. We're looking for people that really know Jesus. We want you to get saved. I want you to get saved. Some of you are lost in here. And because you grew up in Crossville, Tennessee or in a church culture, you are the most difficult person that there is to convert to getting saved. Because you've bought into dead religion and legalism that's told you, I'm saved your whole life. You went to an altar call at some point and repeated some prayer, but there was no change in your life. No fruit. No difference. No following Jesus. I believe today the Lord is telling you it's time to come home. Time to come home. Time to quit playing this American version of Christianity with a little bit of the American dream sprinkled in. You play games with God, hoping you do just enough and are good enough of a person to be able to get by the skin of your teeth into heaven. It's time for you to get saved. Turn from your sin. Have a heart of repentance great thing about being saved and turning from your sin and putting your trust in Christ is this is a surgery that is 100% effective to save whoever gets it. If you'd like to talk to someone, and I get done praying here in just a second, find somebody with a lanyard. We've got tons of small group leaders, tons of people that would love to talk with you, that would love to lead you in whatever way meet Jesus, most likely you're sitting in here 
You've heard preachers talk about this before. Do you just need to talk to God? You just need to give your all to Him. Turn away from your sin and get saved. Amen, Rev Church. Amen. Let me pray for you guys. Lord, we love you. I pray for every single person under the sound of my voice, God. We do not make it to heaven without your grace. And the way we activate that grace and unwrap the gift is faith. I pray, God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, there are people under the sound of my voice that come to faith in you today. They get baptized in a few weeks, Thanksgiving weekend, and start to follow you and live a life of peace, grace, kindness, of goodness, gentleness. We're so thankful that we are not what we used to be. We're so thankful that the scripture says, but God, we love you, Lord. You are awesome and you are mighty. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Hey, we love you guys. You are dismissed. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.